What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's the evening of July 22, 1991, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 32-year-old Tracy Edwards finds himself in a small one-bedroom apartment. The movie The Exorcist Part 3 is playing on the bedroom TV. Tracy has been invited there by a friendly stranger he met only hours before. The man had offered Tracy money and beer if he'd come home with him to pose for nude photographs. Once he's in the apartment, the friendly stranger suddenly changes. The strange man begins to rock back and forth and chants along to the film. When the priest becomes possessed by the devil in a scene, Tracy notices the man becomes visibly excited. The man then lays his head on Tracy's chest and begins to listen to his heartbeat. He says to Tracy, I'm going to eat your heart. The man forces Tracy to lie on the floor and points a knife at his groin. The man tells Tracy that he doesn't like being left alone. He throws handcuffs on Tracy, who, in an attempt to appease the stranger, agrees to only have one wrist cuffed. Tracy continues to try to calm the stranger, who eventually becomes distracted once more by the film. Tracy finds his chance to escape. He hits the man and flies out the door, handcuffs dangling from his wrist. He flags down a police car and reports an attempted murder. Tracy then leads them back to the apartment on North 25th Street. When the officers go to investigate, they find themselves in a living nightmare. That night, people were afraid. People were whispering under their breaths, you know, it was the devil, it's the devil. Between 1978 and 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 young men and boys by luring them back to his apartment where he would drug and strangle them. But it wasn't the act of murder that thrilled Dahmer. It was the dead bodies of his victims that he was interested in. He would dismember the corpses, keep certain organs in his refrigerator, some of which he would actually cannibalize. Dahmer went undetected for 13 years. He was a monster hiding behind a mask of normalcy. I think he killed so many people without being caught because of the fact that he looked like everyone else. He did what successful serial killers do. He blended. They blend in with society. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal.
Jeffrey Dahmer was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in May 1960. The family moved to Iowa before settling in Ohio in 1966. True crime author Harold Schechter says Dahmer didn't have an idyllic childhood. He lived with his parents who were constantly, as he put it, at each other's throats. You know, his mother appeared to have been, you know, this raging bundle of neurotic behavior. Uh, the parents were constantly fighting and screaming. And, and, you know, Dahmer himself, evidently, throughout much of his early life, was completely ignored by both of them, who were so caught up in their own psychological turmoil. In 1966, Dahmer's mother became ill around the birth of his younger brother. Dahmer was six at the time and felt neglected, a school official would later say. Sometimes to get attention, Dahmer would allegedly shout in public and contort his body into weird shapes. At school, he'd break into a spasm and fall on the floor in the hallway in front of his teachers and classmates. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Dahmer soon developed a deranged interest. Well, he had a really morbid curiosity with death from quite a young age. And this started with a fairly innocent insect collection. And he would keep the, the, the bodies of insects inside jars full of chemicals. This soon progressed. Um, he would go fishing and he was interested in what the fish looked like on the inside. So he would chop up the fish to, to have a look at this. Milwaukee Journal reporter Ann Schwartz says Dahmer marveled at the fish's anatomy. And one of his little friends asked him, Jeffrey, why do you, why do you, what are you doing? And he said, just look at it. Dahmer's morbid interest began to escalate. He moves on from dissecting fish to decapitating stray dogs. One of the, the young boys in the neighborhood was walking in the woods behind Dharma's house uh, when Dharma was a teenager, and he came across the, the body of a dead dog, and it was mutilated, and it was nailed to a tree. Dahmer got acid from his father, who was a chemist, and would use it to dissolve animal corpses in his backyard shed. So there's some early interest in animal anatomy that blossoms into this very, very dark obsession and then somehow becomes tangled up with his own sexuality. In high school, Dahmer continued to struggle to fit in and turned to alcohol. Well, Dahmer started drinking when he was at school. Um, one of his former classmates remembered that he used to come in with a cup and he didn't have tea or coffee in this cup. He had scotch whiskey. Reportedly, Dahmer would walk into class with a styrofoam cup reeking of alcohol. When a teacher asked him what he was drinking, he said it was his medicine. There's a thought that, in hindsight, you ask why more people didn't try to intervene. You've got a kid coming drunk to school. But back in the 70s, when Dahmer's coming to school intoxicated, nobody thinks, gee, we better make sure we take care of this. In the summer of 1978, Dahmer's parents finally divorced, but it wasn't easy for Dahmer. 
his parents were at each other's throats. It was not an amicable divorce at all. And, and each of them was forcing him to side with them. So he felt very much torn between his, his parents. So, so this was a real source of, of conflict for him. And I think at this time, children often who have these experiences will retreat into themselves. They will preoccupy themselves with things that they're interested in and will lose themselves in, in their own fantasy world. And I think that's very much what happened with Dharma. After the divorce, Dahmer's mother moved away with his younger brother, and his father began living in a hotel. At 18, Dahmer found himself alone in his childhood home with nothing but his fantasies. Soon, his fantasy world would collide with the real one. On June 18, 1978, 19-year-old Stephen Mark Hicks left his home in Northeast Ohio to hitchhike to a rock concert in nearby Chippewa Lake Park. Dahmer happened to be driving and stopped to pick up Stephen. Dahmer picked him up and you know, invited him back to his house to have some drinks and I guess maybe smoke some dope. They were in the basement of his parents' home. They had had sex. And then Stephen Hicks wanted to leave. And that was when Dahmer just wanted so badly to have company. It sounds like such a textbook psychological thing, you know, abandonment syndrome, but this was at the heart of, of what made him so needy for company. Dahmer really didn't want Stephen to leave and saw to it that he never would. Dahmer clubbed him on the back of the head with a barbell and then strangled him, then ultimately disposed of the body, removed all the flesh, and eventually uh, dissolved it in acid and pulverized the bones with a sledgehammer. He took some of the body parts to the woods behind his house. That's a really symbolic place for Jeffrey Dahmer because this is a place where he's dismembered animals before, where he's displayed mutilated dogs on tree trunks. So we're seeing that this place is special to him. But it was Dahmer's first time taking a human life. I think the first murder is a real milestone for Jeffrey Dahmer. So he knows now that he's capable of this. He knows that he's capable of taking someone else's life. So it's not just a, a fantasy anymore. It's now a reality. He's gone from harming animals to harming people, and he's not going to stop. Forensic psychiatrist Helen Morrison agrees. He won't stop. He's not desperate, but he becomes accustomed to it. He becomes ready to kill again and just kill and kill and kill and kill until he gets caught. After murdering Stephen Hicks and desecrating his body in 1978, Dahmer didn't kill again for nine years. He dropped out of Ohio State University after just one semester and was spending most of his days drinking until his father urged him to enlist in the U.S. Army. The alcohol continued as a theme when he joined the army and he moved to, to Germany. Um, one of his, his former colleagues remembers him just sitting in his room drinking gin all day long, not even leaving his room to eat. In 1981, 
21-year-old Dahmer was discharged from the army after his drinking rendered him incapable of serving. He then spent a month sleeping on beaches in Florida before returning to Ohio. But his father was fed up with him and had Dahmer sent to live with his grandmother in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to start a new life. By 1986, Dahmer had been arrested a couple of times for exposing himself in public, once in front of a group of children. The hopeless alcoholic had managed to find work at a local chocolate factory in Milwaukee and was frequenting gay bars and bathhouses. I think being homosexual affected Dahmer in two ways. Firstly, it was a source of shame for him because it was quite a stigmatized social identity at the time. But also, it enabled him an opportunity when it came to his killing behavior. So being homosexual at this time, it was something that happened in the shadows. It was something that happened underground. And this was the ideal place for someone like him to go hunting. It was this exposure to the gay scene that seemed to reawaken the dark sexual urges inside of him. By September 1987, more than nine years since the murder of Stephen Hicks, Jeffrey Dahmer was ready to kill again. His idea was to drug people and keep them with him so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't answer back to him, they wouldn't argue with him, they wouldn't fight him. They would stay with him. That's what he wanted. He wanted companionship. So he would go to the bars on Milwaukee's near south side, and he would have conversations with people in these bars. And when he was talking to these people, these prospective victims, he would say, so what was it like when you came out? How was your family about it? So if your response was, oh, my family has been great, they're so supportive, I'm very close to my parents, that person wasn't going to be a victim. But if the person answered, my parents aren't speaking to me anymore, I'm estranged from my family. I'm kind of on my own now. That was the perfect victim for Jeffrey Dahmer because he wanted to choose people who wouldn't be missed. Between September 1987 and March 1988, Dahmer killed three men. The youngest, a 14-year-old boy who he paid to pose for nude photographs before drugging and strangling him to death. He then dissolved the body in acid. District Attorney Mike McCann, who later served as prosecutor for the Dahmer case, says, He cleverly developed a program to destroy the bodies, get rid of the bodies, left no evidence. This was a very clever killer, very clever killer. Dahmer murdered two of the victims at his grandmother's house where he was living. His grandmother became aware that he was bringing these young guys back. So obviously she had no inkling of, of the atrocities he was committing on their bodies, um, although she was complaining also about a foul odor that she noticed. On September 25th, 1988, Dahmer moved into his own apartment on North 25th Street in Milwaukee. He didn't wait long before attacking again. The very next day, he enticed a 13-year-old boy back to his home. Dahmer sexually assaulted the boy. But once Dahmer passed out drunk, the 13-year-old was able to escape 
and went straight to the police. In January 1989, Dahmer was convicted of sexual assault, but the sentencing was delayed until May, during which time an unrelenting Dahmer, unbeknownst to the authorities, managed to claim a fifth victim. The 29-year-old served 10 months in prison, but when he was released in March 1990, he picked up right where he left off, to horrifying extremes. So Jeffrey Dahmer really did ramp up his offending. The scale and the, the nature of his behavior became all the more grotesque. So he wasn't just killing people, dismembering them, and then disposing of their, their bodies. He started to do some really bizarre things. He was in the process of constructing some hideously diabolical shrine in his bedroom out of the skulls and skeletons of some of his victims. It's almost as though some bizarre, archaic thing had broken through, and he was performing or creating some sort of ancient, you know, human sacrificial temple in this little Milwaukee apartment. In 1990, Dahmer killed four more young men. His M.O. was becoming more refined. He would offer his victims money to go back to his apartment with him to take pictures, nude photographs of them, and then perhaps to have sex. Every single one of his victims went with him willingly. He would offer them a drink, and once he found out what they wanted to drink, he kept a lot of, a lot of things on hand, uh, different kinds of alcohol, and that's when he would put a drug in it that would put them to sleep or that would relax them so that they would pass out. Dahmer would use benzodiazepine, a mild tranquilizer, to drug his victims' drinks, rendering them unconscious. They would pass out. He would then have sex with them while they were passed out, do with them as he wished, but of course they couldn't do to him. Then as they approached recovery, coming out of it, he would strangle them to death. But it wasn't the act of murder that thrilled Dahmer. Just like the dissected fish and dismembered dogs from his childhood, it was the dead bodies of his victims that pleased him. Dahmer liked necrophilia. He liked sex with unconscious people. He wasn't a slasher in the sense that he took delight in killing. His purpose was sex with these people, company with these people. That's hard to believe. After sex with the corpses... Dahmer began to experiment with the victim's body parts. He would dismember the corpses, dissolve parts of the bodies in these vats of acid he had, keep certain organs in his refrigerator, some of which he would actually cannibalize. Dahmer said that the cannibalism that he engaged in was born out of a curiosity. He wanted to find out First of all, what that would be like. He also said that there was an element of wanting to make these people a part of him so they would be with him forever. And the horror only became worse when Dahmer began experimenting with his semi-conscious victims with the most unimaginable, barbaric of acts. 
He would drill holes in their skulls and put muriatic acid inside to see if he could get them to a, a zombie state so that, that he could keep them alive and subservient to him. But, of course, that didn't work, and his victims died one after another. Hearing about that is the stuff of horror movies. In May 1991, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer was at the peak of his killing career. He had murdered 11 men and had begun collecting bones and skulls from his victims while cannibalizing their organs. Somehow, he carefully went about his killings under the radar of the police and the people of Milwaukee. I think he killed so many people without being caught because of the fact that he looked like everyone else. He did what successful serial killers do. He blended. They blend in with society. Now, he was a Caucasian male living in in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, but he didn't talk to anybody. He didn't bother anybody. He was barely someone people noticed. Barely noticed. He also was targeting people who, he found out, might not be missed. Mike McCain chalks it up to Dahmer's skill at hiding the evidence. It was not known that we had a serial slayer loose in our city. We did not know because he was so cleverly disposing of the bodies. The families were reporting the sons were missing, but the police were not finding bodies. And not infrequently young men, something happens in their life. They just leave, these up and leave town. That happens enough that the police don't get worried. If it's a woman, they'll immediately commit resources to investigate, but the young men, they don't. But on May 26th, 1991, Dahmer came close to capture after an encounter with a 14-year-old boy. Dahmer had taken Conorak's synthesis a young Asian male who he found attractive. He met him in the mall, offered him money to go back to their, his apartment. He went, and he began to work the ritual. Dahmer would drug him, and then he began the process of this crude lobotomy, and he had drilled a hole in this young man's head. He took a break. He ran out to get more beer. While he was gone, Conorak ran out of the apartment. He was naked, he was completely dazed, and he was running up the alley next to Dahmer's apartment building. A woman in another apartment building saw him running up the alley and said, there's a boy running up the alley, something's going on, and then these women called the police. And then Dahmer appeared, and again, this is another like remarkable characteristic of these psychopaths, is that they have a, an ability to maintain, you know, a kind of coolness uh, under the most extraordinarily high-pressured circumstances. So he walked up to the officers, good evening officers, he's very polite, he's sober, and he said, this is my boyfriend, he came to stay with me. We had a little bit too much to drink, and he ran out of the house. He said, how old is he? Dahmer said, he's 19. And the officers said, okay, well, just to make sure, let's all walk back up to the apartment together. 
The cops went in and looked around. They even peeked into the bedroom where there was a decomposing corpse of one of Dahmer's previous victims. But, you know, they took such a cursory look at it that they didn't even notice it. Assuming the couple was having a quarrel, the two police officers left Conorak alone with Dahmer in the apartment. In the early hours of the morning, he murdered the 14-year-old Conorak. An opportunity to catch the killer had been missed. I think that really speaks volumes about the attitudes of the police at the time in terms of ethnic minorities, in terms of young people, in terms of the gay community. And that was another victim that could potentially have been saved. So there's this terrible thing going on behind closed doors and people just aren't seeing it. People aren't wanting to see it. Even the police are not joining up the dots and, and, and finding out what's really going on. So, so this is allowed to just bubble away and get worse. After evading capture, Dahmer was free to continue with his bloodlust. By July 1991, Dahmer's desire to kill had become insatiable. In just 20 days, he murdered four more men, bringing his total number of victims to 17. But Dahmer's reign was about to come to an end. On July 22nd, he met Tracy Edwards. While they were together in the apartment, uh, Dahmer threw a handcuff on him. This was now the beginning of his ritual. Dahmer had taken photographs of his victims in various stages of dismemberment, Polaroids. And those were sitting on the dresser inside the bedroom. They weren't sitting out in the, in the main living room. But there was some speculation that Tracy Edwards had perhaps seen that. And he ran out of, the, out of the apartment in his underwear, ran down the street, and when he saw the police car, Tracy Edwards has said his intention was just to get the handcuff off. That's all he wanted. He stopped these cops to say, hey, can you just get this off of me? So he stopped, and the officers start talking to him about what he saw, and then they said, well, we should probably check this out. Let's all go back to the apartment. Dahmer answered... And the minute he saw that it was the police, he tried to shut the door on them. The police pushed the door open a bit. They started struggling with him. And then finally, he just gave in. And that was when Dahmer was officially finished. He was finished killing, and he knew that he was finished. The police officers immediately arrested Dahmer. They had found the remains of some of his victims in his apartment. The man whose job it was to prosecute the relentless killer was Milwaukee District Attorney Mike McCann. They saw the body parts, and then one of the officers said he heard a scream. Then he realized later he was the one who screamed when he saw the body. So they knew they were dealing with a very serious offense. Dahmer did not resist, a little slight resistance, but Dahmer was taken into custody, and the investigation was initiated. The media descended on Dahmer as unbelievable stories about what was being uncovered inside his apartment were revealed. It was so fantastical that you think people are, are making it up when they're telling you the details. But as it turned out, they weren't making it up. It was it, all of the atrocities that we heard about that had happened in that apartment really did happen. The medical examiner who was called to the scene 
didn't know what was happening. It was so strange. There was a freezer there, bodies, parts in the freezer, called in a hazmat crew. Well, our television stations cover the police radio. When they hear that, they dispatch crews there. The first day was local television, second day, national television. By the third day, it was international television. They were able to show video of these items coming out of the front door of this apartment building that's not usual at a crime scene. We saw a large blue barrel in which we know that Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to dissolve body parts. They had a refrigerator that was holding uh, skulls and, and, and also was holding body parts. So these are coming down the stairs and people were just incredulous to watch it. When I wrote the story for the Milwaukee Journal that morning and it was released in the paper at about eight o'clock, I think, in the morning, um, normally we were an afternoon paper, but we went out early with it because it was such an incredible story. To take for a couple of hours of sex, to take a human being's life, that's so evil, so evil. Once in custody at the local police station, Dahmer made his confession. When Dahmer was arrested, there were already a number of bodies in his quarters. He gave full confessions to the police, detailing this, his involvement in 16 separate slayings. Most of the time, he did not know the name of the victims. When Dahmer remembered a crime that he might not have shared with the detectives, he would have the jail call them, whether it was the middle of the night or the middle of the day, and say, I remembered something else, please come over. Dahmer had said he wanted to make sure that he didn't forget anything because he wanted those families to have closure. I'm not sure about that. I, that may be giving Jeffrey Dahmer more credit than he is, is deserved, but he did claim to, to want to try and remember so that all of those families would, would have closure. Dahmer's case made headlines across the world after the details of his grisly confession were leaked. A New York Times reporter compromised the integrity of a worker at our building and got a copy of the confession. It was a detailed 38-page confession, so the details of the gory things he had done again captured people's interest. Although he confessed to killing 16 people in the state of Wisconsin, Dahmer was first charged with four counts of murder on July 25, 1991. Eleven further counts were added in August. The following month, investigators in Ohio found teeth and bone fragments belonging to Stephen Hicks in the woods near Dahmer's family home. A preliminary hearing was set for January 1992. His legal team was going to argue that the killings were the work of a madman. The issue wasn't going to be, did he do it or not? The issue was going to be, was he sane or insane when he did it? And his hope was that at least in even one of the cases, he could induce the jury to believe that he was insane. Under those circumstances, he would be sentenced not to a prison, but to a mental health facility. People would say to me, Mike, this guy killed 16 people. He was drinking their blood, eating parts of their body. He must have been crazy. It sounds like he's crazy to say that. But that's not what the insanity rule is. The city wanted justice. They wanted to see the man the press was calling the Milwaukee cannibal locked away in prison. The trial of Jeffrey Dahmer would not only be one of the biggest cases in Wisconsin, but in United States history. 
My reaction to it then was the same reaction I think that everybody who lived in Milwaukee had when they heard about the case. No, it can't be. This is Milwaukee. Those kinds of things don't happen here. This is the Midwest. This is a very nice place. The trial of Jeffrey Dahmer began on January 30th, 1992. Journalist Ann Schwartz had a front row seat. The courtroom was an odd spectacle because court TV was still new in, in the game back then. And the idea that you would come to court and you'd be on television was still kind of new to people. That was the kind of media attention to a trial that Milwaukee hadn't seen in a very, very long time, if ever. I can remember so clearly the first time Jeffrey Dahmer's initial appearance in court when he walked in. I think the real fear that people had when they first saw Jeffrey Dahmer was that he looked like everybody else. He was a good-looking young man, and he is not the person that you would look at and say, stay away from that guy. It would be up to the Milwaukee DA, Mike McCann, to try to prove that Dahmer was sane and responsible for his unspeakable crimes. Guilty wasn't going to be an issue, but we wanted the jury to know enough about the facts, and so the defense, to say, all right, what really happened here? How atrocious was it? How planned was it? How was he behaving? What skills were involved? He couldn't control himself. It was a lot to take in because the testimony was so graphic. We all knew Mike McCann. He was a religious man, and we'd seen him in, we've seen him in court. He's a, he was a good attorney. But the kinds of things that he was reciting out of the criminal complaint and the confession were unheard of. These things were unheard of, and they happened right here in our city. He did it quietly. He concealed the bodies, cleverly concealed, destroyed the bodies, planned it well, laid in the equipment, got the drugs that he used, knowing that he worked the thought he was insane. The way he conducted himself uh, was in a way that it seemed that he was sane, and that's what we wanted to get across to the jury. McCann employed the help of psychiatry expert Dr. Philip Resnick. The more bizarre the crimes, such as involving cannibalism, the more the lay public wants to think that guy had to be out of his mind. But in looking at it from the actual strict definition of insanity, generally the diseases of paraphilias, like necrophilia, where someone has trouble controlling themselves, are not viewed, uh, for the most part, as diseases which qualify for insanity because of the social implications. One of the points that I made as a consultant is, even if you have necrophilia, and even if you have trouble controlling your impulse, the majority of necrophiliacs will select a setting where they can accomplish this without homicide. So some become assistants in morgues or assistants in pathology labs where they may have access to dead victims. Others will actually disinter bodies after they're buried so that one does not have to actually kill to exercise the necrophilia's uh, impulse. And that's one of the reasons I felt that he didn't qualify for insanity. 
The trial essentially became a debate between specialist psychiatrists in regards to the state of Dahmer's mental health. Meanwhile, Dahmer sat watching the whole thing play out over two weeks. Dahmer was very calm in court. When you talk of you assessing a person by what you see, no one studying him would believe he was insane. He was in con, he was watching what was going on. He wasn't reacting in any negative way. Uh, he conducted himself in a very rational way, a very proper way. On February 15th, the jury had reached a verdict on Dahmer's sanity. Someone like Dahmer comes along who has never been in a psychiatric hospital and alleges insanity. Juries are going to be skeptical of it. And then when it's all in the form of his sexual drive, rather than a traditional psychosis where someone's out of touch with reality and he's taking careful steps to cover his tracks, it's very difficult to succeed with insanity with that type of case. Jeffrey Dahmer was ruled to be sane by the jury. On February 17, 1992, Judge Lawrence Graham sentenced him to life imprisonment for each of the 15 counts against him. When the verdict was announced in court, there was a great shout from the gallery especially from the victims' families that cried. I was pleased in the sense, happy, not exuberant, but happy that this danger was removed from our community, that the jury had not been hoodwinked, that the jury realized this chap was not insane. Dahmer would have to serve a minimum of 936 years. He was immediately sent to the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage. Three months later in Ohio, Dahmer was also found guilty of murdering Stephen Hicks. He was given yet another life sentence. In 1993, Dahmer had several jailhouse interviews conducted by various media outlets. In one conversation with Dateline, he said control was a leading motive behind the murders, saying... I could completely control a person, a person that I found physically attractive, and keep them with me as long as possible, even if it meant just keeping a part of them. Dahmer always said that he was compelled to kill, that they were urges. He said, I had urges that I could not control. He also said that even though he was in prison, he was relieved that the killing was done. He still had the urges. They didn't go away. He was just in a place where he couldn't act on them. He expressed that he had a problem and deserved retribution. He went on to say, I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I know I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness, and now I have some peace.
Locked away for the rest of his life, Dahmer found comfort in the Bible. In 1994, he decided to get baptized. The prison called on local minister Roy Ratcliffe. So I was quite surprised to be uh, escorted to a little room and uh, left alone. And then uh, Jeff came, comes to the room and he, he closes the door. And then there's he and I sitting together across the table. Uh, and I'm thinking for a moment, wow, I'm in a room with a man who's killed several people. So yeah, that was a little bit uh, disconcerting. But I, I was there for a purpose and for a reason, so I wanted to find out what was going on and to see what I could do to help. So my fears were set aside primarily because of my focus on what I was trying to do. Jeff was a normal guy, courteous, very respectful uh, to me. When we shook hands, I noticed his hands were rather small. Looking at his hands and thinking, wow, these are the hands that uh, strangled people. These are the hands that murdered people. These are the hands that dismembered people. On May 10, 1994, the same day that notorious serial killer John Wayne Gacy was executed, Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized in a prison bathtub. Then the door opens, and I, I walk into the room, and Jeff had already crawled into the tub, and, was, and the only thing that was above the water was just simply his head. And so I, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, and push his head down under. And then when he came back up, I said something I often say to people when I baptize them. I said, welcome to the family of God. And he said, well, thank you very much. But just six months after his baptism, Dahmer and another convicted murderer, Jesse Anderson, were attacked and killed by a fellow inmate. Christopher Scarver took a barbell, went into the bathroom, and beat both Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson to death. There were a number of people who felt that Jeffrey Dahmer got exactly what he deserved. When I called his mother, she said, well, now everybody got what they want. The monster is dead. And then she said, he was my son. He was my boy. It was a terrible, terrible death in that sense there. But for some people, it was a, a relief. They were glad because all they could think about are the crimes he committed. They're not thinking about where I'm thinking about is here's a person who's trying to serve God as best as he can, and, and now his life is being taken from us. I mean, some people see some sort of poetic symmetry in the fact that Dahmer's first murder uh, was the one in which he bludgeoned the teenage hitchhiker Stephen Hicks to death with a, a barbell, and that he himself died in a very, very similar way. Dahmer's apartment on North 25th Street, where he murdered 12 men and kept a macabre collection of their remains, was demolished in November 1992. Jeffrey Dahmer committed some of the most evil acts that I have ever written about or heard about or seen on a television show because they were real. I don't know if he was sane or insane because that's not my training to figure that out, but I can absolutely say that he did some of the most evil acts known to man. What Makes a Killer is an Audioboom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audioboom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, 
Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Kai Engel. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the survivors, friends, and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. On the last episode of this season of What Makes a Killer. On November 17, 2006, police in the German city of Köln searched the vehicle of a 47-year-old truck driver suspected of murder. What they found inside his cab was a collection of gruesome memorabilia. When they searched the lorry, they found evidence that this was not a one-off act. There were Polaroid photographs of other victims. There were trophies in the lorry. The driver was a man named Volker Eckert. His arrest brought an end to a 32-year career of murder. There will always be the question, were there six dead women, or were there 13, or even 19, or even more? Back then, he was just beginning his brutal career. I was incredibly lucky. 